Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Now, do you like quizzes? Do you want to be Prime Minister? Well, good news. Uh, You can come on my Times Radio show, 10 till 1, Monday to Friday, and play our hugely popular quiz, Can You Get to Number 10? It's very easy. Ten questions loosely connected to ten cabinet jobs. The more questions you get right, the better we get. Taking your place alongside our listeners and guests. It's ten general knowledge questions. The more you get right, you get a job in the cabinet, you could end up as Prime Minister. Who wouldn't want to do that? Particularly wise Redbox listeners. Email me, matt.shawley at times.radio with your name and your number, and we can get you on very soon. Now, coming up on today's episode, we're talking guns. It's now been three weeks since that horrific shooting happened in Plymouth. But in that time, there have been some 35 mass shootings in America. And we just wanted to examine Britain's relationship with guns, America's relationship with guns, and will anything change? So that's our big thing that's coming up on the episode today. But first, as ever, it's our columnist panel. No night at the Marriott this week. Indian night is off. Having a spray, t- everyone's having a spray time this week. So instead, James Marriott is joined by Olivia Utley from The Telegraph. And, uh, I suppose we should start with the sort of the big uh, story of uh, the day, the week, the month, uh, the question of Afghanistan. I'll ask you in a moment about how you thought um, Dominic Raab got on and uh, this uh, suggestion by Ben Wallace that Britain is no longer a superpower. But let's just take a listen to um, what Dominic Raab has been saying in the last few minutes uh, at this press conference in uh, Qatar. He emphasised the UK's support for Afghanistan. Our commitment uh, on the part of the UK to uh, Afghanistan remains. Uh, We need to adjust to the new reality. And I think we had good conversations about what that will involve. Uh, Dominic Raab at the press conference this morning. He also uh, confirmed the UK commitment to eligible refugees. And uh, we will extend uh, a warm welcome and provide haven to those uh, who uh, wish to come to the UK. 
uh, and who are eligible. That's Dominic Barb uh, speaking this morning. Um, Olivia, what, what have you made of uh, his appearance at the Select Committee yesterday, then his decision to go to Qatar today? Is he now giving the impression of being in control? Um, I don't think, I mean, to start, I do feel a little bit of sympathy with Dominic Raab. Um, it wasn't his decision to withdraw from Afghanistan. Once the US had withdrawn um, in such a messy way, there was nothing else we could really do. So from a sort of macro perspective, he didn't have a huge amount of choice. And I slightly think that the, I know it was a terrible look that he didn't come back from Crete, but I doubt that it actually materially mattered that much. I'm sure he wasn't just chillaxing. Um, I expect he was taking a lot of calls and not having much fun in Creed. Um, so I do feel a little bit sorry for him. But I think, I mean, Tom Tugendhat did a great job sort of uh, one-upping him with his, you know, uh, excellent knowledge of SEO. Um, uh, what's the word? Uh, word. Um, Initial. What's the word? Anyway, um, that and, you know, his fantastic knowledge of Afghanistan, his on-the-ground knowledge. Uh, he pronounced all of the cities perfectly and, and Rob was sort of on the back foot looking a bit all over the place. Um, I think it was quite lucky that Claudia Webb came in with her sort of droning six-formish questions um, and that at least made him look a little bit better. But no, I think he doesn't particularly look like a man in control and sort of rushing off to Qatar uh, slightly I would say, underlines that um, it, it, it looks a bit like he doesn't quite know what he's doing, though I'm not quite sure what Foreign Secretary... Uh, I, think it, I, think it's, I think his failings are mostly sort of optical rather than, rather than deep base, but I, I think that it's quite possible that he loses his job because, you know, they, they need, the government needs a scapegoat on this and he's sort of offering himself up as a scapegoat with these, with these basic mistakes. I suppose the question is, if your defence is, it doesn't make any difference whether I'm here or not, uh, it's not the most ringing endorsement of your uh, role as Foreign Secretary and Deputy uh, Deputy Prime Minister. Um, the other th- the other really striking thing, and this is where it sort of moves slightly beyond uh, just Dominic Raab uh, personally, James, is this sort of dispute, public dispute, between him and Ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary, as to who was to blame and was it intelligence. Uh, and it seems very unlikely that both of them can survive in this government, because they seem to be barely on speaking terms. But this this idea of Britain is not a superpower... Uh, he's told, uh, this is Ben Wallace in an interview with The Spectator, he says it's obvious that Britain's not a superpower. I think it really goes to what the definition of a global power is. But a superpower that is also not prepared to stick at something isn't probably a superpower either. It's certainly not a global force, it's just a big power. So he's almost suggesting there that America's not a superpower. Does it matter whether or not Britain and America are superpowers? Well, I was kind of amazed that anyone thought Britain um, still might be a superpower. I kind of thought we got over that in, after, after, after the Suez crisis, but clearly we're... Um, uh, we're still obsessing about it. Uh, no, I mean, I think there are two superpowers in there, China and America. And I think if you start expanding the term much beyond that, it becomes a bit meaningless because, you know, to compare the kind of geopolitical influence, the economies, um, the military spending, um, the, you know, the kind of ability to sort of um, influence other countries' affairs of China and America with anyone, with China and America compared to anyone else, it's just it's a completely different thing. And if we're a superpower as well as China and America being superpowers, then we kind of just need another word for proper superpowers, you know, like super superpowers or something. S- super duper powers. Yeah, it's sort of strange. I kind of, I don't know. Am I alone in this? I just had no idea that we thought we were still a superpower. I thought we just had accepted that we weren't. But, I mean, maybe I'm on my own on this. Olivia, my sense is that the political establishment, the Westminster establishment, uh, maybe certainly people in the Conservative Party, 
still likes to regard Britain as a superpower. That actually, you know, Brexit, global Britain, Britannia rules the waves again. That's all still, you know, a thing that, that stirs a certain Tory heart. Olivia, we've lost you again. Have we? No, we'll get her back. We'll get her back. But that, that is, I think there's still, James, I think there's still a, an element of that within the Conservative Party. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's a kind of bit of a patriotic myth. And I'm sure maybe even if you don't really think Britain's a superpower, you're aware that it's the kind of, it's a bit defeatist to say that we're not. And um, for the purpose of keeping up appearances, you know, it would be a bit unpatriotic to pretend that we weren't. Therefore, everyone has to kind of collude in this idea that we still are. But it just seems so, just seems so strange. I mean, I don't really know what trappings of a superpower we have apart from the kind of, you know, the fact that we have, you know, our sort of the various sort of trappings of a global power that we acquired at the end of the Second World War when we were, um, and those sort of symbolic feelings. But I just think the global order has changed, you know. I genuinely want to know, you know, you definitely get it, obviously, when you go to America, there's flags around, whether other countries go around thinking they're superpowers or if they just do their thing where, you know, where they are and don't feel yeah. the need to swagger about the place. I mean, I think it's, um, it's oh, just, oh, sorry. Olivia, I think we've got you back. Hello. Yes, you have. Sorry, I'm not sure what happened there, I but I didn't know. hear the whole of your it's question. It's a curse. It's a curse. Well, we, well, we, we were slightly talking about how this idea of being a superpower still... James doesn't think... is surprised that anyone thought we were. I was just sort of saying, well, actually, because within the Conservative Party especially, global Britain, um, Royal Britannia, the, the trade yacht, all of that stuff, all fe- likes to feed into the idea of, you know, return to empire and all that sort of business. Um, it does still stir a certain part of the Conservative Party. But I was also just wondering whether or not other countries go around even thinking about this or they just, you know, does Denmark or um, uh, South Africa or, you know, do other countries worry about their place in the world quite as much as we do? I think you're definitely right that there's a certain part of the Conservative Party, the sort of Peter Bones of the world, um, who do see Britain very much as a global superpower and sort of don't really like the idea of, of working together with other, you know, I think the consensus now really is, is what Ben Wallace says, that, well, the, the future is Britain working bilaterally and trilaterally, et cetera, with other countries, um, because our military, we just, we don't have the money and also it doesn't really seem worth building up our military so much that we could be a global superpower that doesn't seem particularly good use of of um of people's taxes as for whether other countries worry that much about their standing in the world i would say probably denmark and south africa no not particularly but i think that macron is is very concerned about whether france is a global superpower um and i think there are a couple of other countries like that so i don't think it's a unique quirk of, of that side of the British Conservative Party necessarily. Yeah, I think maybe you're right. Maybe you are. <laughs> maybe you are right. Yeah, Macron is definitely, yeah, definitely sort of swimming in that pool. Um, James, your column uh, that you wrote this week was a bank bank holidays. Uh, and it's a sort of, it's a, it's a bank holiday tradition that somebody will come out and call for more bank holidays. I think, was it the TUC came out and said that we should have more bank holidays? Um, and you're in full agreement. You are the Jeremy Corbyn. I am, yes, yeah. Uh, this this week, this week, I am. Uh, I mean, it's always sort of seemed fairly. It's always kind of seemed fairly obvious to me. Um, the sort of the traditional, the traditional bank column, the traditional there should be more bank holidays column that's written every time this year um, says that oh no, we've got this sort of dreary stretch, you know, until Christmas and no bank holidays, uh, gloomy winter with no respite. Uh, and I sort of just wanted to go into the kind of history of it all because. Um, I think it's sort of fascinating to remember the kind of British tradition of holidays. And uh, if you sort of go back basically to the 15th century, um, there were sort of public holidays, uh, religious festivals all the time. So I think the average um, 
work, the average working year in the 15th century was about 250 days, uh, which is slightly less than what we than what we do today. Um, and then over the 17th and 18th centuries, um, we lost all these holidays. I mean, all these fantastic traditions. There's a tradition called Saint Monday, uh, which was a sort of uh, medieval um, and sort of 15th century, 15th, 16th century thing where workers would quite commonly take off the first Monday of a week if they fancied it to sleep off their hangovers. And that was a sort of oh. accepted, uh, accepted workplace thing, which it, it really isn't anymore. Um, <laughs> and we began to get we began to sort of get bank holidays again in the 19th century which is kind of paradoxical because we think of the 19th century as this era of dark satanic mills and fumes and abused workers and stuff and um there's all kinds of fascinating evidence which people at the 19th century at the time were saying, which is that there's a particular benefit to taking a holiday as a nation. There are all kinds of these benefits for national unity. People are happier. There's a really interesting study in Sweden that um, showed that people are, people are happier on holidays the more other people are taking holidays simultaneously, oh, which I th- sort of think just sort of makes sense. You know, if you're in the streets on a bank holiday, there is that kind of there is that kind of atmosphere there. And I just think as a society, as we're more and more atomized, as we're increasingly working from home, as people's working time is uh, much less synchronized, the more we can sort of do something together as a, as a society, uh, which is unlikely, which is very unlikely now to be, you know, religious festivals, the more we can have a communal sense of something going on, which I think happens on bank holidays, the better. And that's why I think there should be more. Uh, well, that, that's the case for Olivia. Where do you stand on them? Well, yeah, I actually entirely agree with James. Oh, <laughs> Sorry that's so about fun. that. <laughs> I think, yeah, I'm going to say what the other side is, which you know you hear quite a lot of people, and uh, I think probably quite a lot of my colleagues would say this, but that the bank holidays are taking, you know, would, we're much less productive if we had more bank holidays. I just think that's a ridiculous myth. The idea that sort of every hour that employees are in work they're, they're working really hard um is 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 rubbish and it's it's very clear you know that the, the idea that you, if you get in at 9 30 then you're doing less work than if you get in at nine i mean that's not necessarily true at all you probably work much harder and much smarter um because you know you've got a bit less time and i think the point james made about um about once you've been sort of refreshed and regenerated you'll probably do the work um is definitely true i also think i mean I was in York over the bank holiday weekend. There are a lot of people in York over the bank holiday weekend. They're just pouring money into the economy. Like, what an amazing pickup for pubs and restaurants and shops, um, etc. Which, especially now, obviously, desperately need our help. And and it uh, it seems pretty obvious that that also I do just quite like bank holidays. <laughs> I love the idea of a Saint Monday to to sleep off your hangover. Yeah, I'm a big fan of that. We went, to, we went to a circus on Monday, the whole family went, and there was, you know, there were lots of parents and obviously children, but it felt slightly, like, naughty, but a bit fun. You know, the fact that it was a Monday and we were at the circus because it was a bank holiday... Um, it just felt it's brilliant and such a traditional, such a traditional British way of spending it. Um, <laughs> the historian Robert Toombs had this great um, in his book, um, The English and Their History, which I really recommend. He has this fantastic sort of riff on the democratic spirit of the English bank holiday. And it's all about the seaside and about festivals and about getting drunk and getting into fights. I mean, maybe we don't think all those things are necessarily positive, but he sort of sees it as this great sort of populist <laughs> democratic celebration, um, which he thinks is a kind of a nice corrective to the sort of um, the Victorian middle class's disapproval of leisure and obsession with hard work and stuff. And it's sort of, and this sort of deep British tradition of just having proper, proper fun. I mean, I, I was actually working on Bank Holiday Monday, so I can't really, I wasn't participating. I didn't I mean, fight anyone we get, uh, we'll, or get we'll, we'll discuss on another day whether or not what you do is actually work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Leave it at the James Marriott. Then, of course, you can read James in the Times of the Week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, we're going to talk guns. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Now, it's been three weeks since a gunman in Plymouth opened fire and killed five people before turning the gun on himself. The last time the UK had such a deadly mass shooting was more than a decade ago when Derek Bird killed 12 people in Cumbria. But in just the three weeks since the Plymouth shooting, there have been 35, 35 mass shootings in the United States of America. It's a pattern which is all too familiar. I want to begin by saying that Hillary and I are profoundly shocked and saddened by the tragedy today in Littleton, where two students opened fire on their classmates before apparently turning their guns on themselves. I uh, cried when they wanted to cry. I hugged when they wanted to hug. I, um, you know, I just, we just loved them as best as we could. And uh, that's all you can do. And um, people were in shock. You know, it wasn't but 24 hours ago that they lost a child, and now they're here trying to deal with it. I hope and pray that I don't have to come out again during my tenure as president to offer my condolences to families in these circumstances. But based on my experience as president, I can't guarantee that. This act of evil occurred as the victims and their families were in their place of sacred worship. We cannot put into words the pain and grief we all feel, and we cannot begin to imagine the suffering of those who lost the ones they so dearly loved. I even hate to say it because we're saying it so often, my heart goes out. Our hearts go out for the survivors the, who had to, uh, had to flee for their lives and who hid, terrified, 
unsure if they would ever see their families again, their friends again. Yeah, time and again, US presidents have had to react to mass shootings in the United States, but very little seems to actually change. So how have two countries, Britain and America, with so much shared cultural history, ended up uh, with such oppo uh, opposing positions on gun ownership? In a moment, we're going to speak to two Americans who now live and work in the UK. But first, we thought we'd check in with Jackie Goddard. She's the Times' Miami correspondent who's got a personal connection uh, to what's happened with guns in America. So I've reported on a number of shootings in my 20 years in the US, but there was one that brought things rather closer to home back in February 2018, Valentine's Day. And there was a shooting at my local high school in my community. It ended with 17 people being killed. 14 students and three staff and 17 injured and I think the difference with this one was that when you're reporting on on a shooting or any other kind of a incident or disaster in somebody's community you move in you report on it and in time you kind of drift away from it and might check in from time to time on the aftermath but this one every day since there's, there's been these shifting dynamics in the community, the, the kind of aftermath that it leaves behind has been interesting. The impacts that you don't see unless you're in that community, the effects on people, the PTSD, the traumatic post-traumatic stress that, that a lot of, of the people who went through this at the school have gone through. Just small things that one has to consider now in the community. Every time there are July the 4th Independence Day fireworks, there are always appeals from, from families you know, please, asking, please bear in mind that every time a firework goes off, every time there's a loud bang, uh, any time there's a siren goes down the street, any time kids have, hear a fire alarm at their school, there's a sort of jumpiness and edginess that it's left behind and this stress and trauma. It led to the, the Parkland shooting, led to a number of, uh, of legislative changes in Florida, including all schools now have to have what's called an SRO, a school resource officer, which is basically a, an armed guard, an armed cop at every school. There are mandatory shooter drills, uh, active shooter drills, and the children have to practice once a month or hiding in the corner or hiding under their desks for in the event that a shooter might might enter the school you can understand that for you know fire drills and tornado drills these sort of natural or, or somewhat more acceptable uh, risk but 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 the the notion that our kids have to get under their desks once a month and cram into the corner of a classroom or hide in the in the stationary closet because there might one day be an active shooter in their classroom like there was in Parkland. It just seems so crazy. There was a lot of blame went round. People pointed fingers in different directions. The obvious finger to point being at the shooter who was a, a, a teenager, former student at the school with, um, with mental disturbances and he's still awaiting trial. There's a lot of debate as to whether he should be tried on a, on a death penalty case or not. So three years later, there's still no justice for the victims. And some people blamed the school board, blamed the school superintendent, said the school security hadn't been high enough. People blamed the sheriff's department, that the, the, the deputies hadn't done enough. Um, 
there was a lot of blame that went round. There was a lot of political divisiveness. Some of the parents of students involved, some were, were pro-gun, still are, amazingly, and some became gun reformists and became very prominent voices calling for gun reform and, and gun control. Nobody has said, get rid of guns altogether in America. That's a, a, a stretch, basically, trying to get that ever done. Um, but, uh, but getting semi-automatic weapons off the streets really shouldn't be a stretch. Um, and yet somehow in America it is. Um, I, I think I'm always baffled by this dynamic of, of how accepted the gun culture is in America and how difficult it is really to effect reform and that even after this massacre um, with kids dead in school hallways, you know, running down the hallway with their backpacks on being shot in the back, um, that if even that isn't going to do the trick, I, I really don't know what will. Um, I don't see a political will there or enough political will to change anything. Um, and there is a public will, but it's pretty, again, politically divided. Um, and after the Parkland shooting, there was a, a big movement began that was founded by some of the students at that school. Um, they founded an organization called March for Our Lives. They were very effective at, uh, at being heard and at being punchy and outspoken and, and getting up on podiums and, speak, and gathering a million, a million people in Washington, D.C., to protest for gun reform and over time really their voice has has faded they're still there they're still working away doing their work but but there's been this acceptance that change isn't going to come quickly if it's going to come at all a couple of weeks ago one of my kids started as a student at marjorie stoneman douglas high school where the massacre occurred and the building in which the shooting happened it's a it, it's a standalone building as part of the school grounds which are made up of a number of different buildings and units and that building is uh, set to be demolished because it's not somewhere where the memories of what happened and the awfulness of what happened can really be you know scrubbed away and forgotten um, so that building is a condemned building um, but it's fenced off uh, to, to kind of try to kind of somehow screen it um, or you can't really screen a very tall building. Um, so it's there, there's this constant reminder. And it's been left standing for now, for the last three years, because it is a crime scene. And because the trial of the alleged shooter still has not occurred, that crime scene cannot be destroyed uh, in case a jury wants to go and visit it during the trial for any, any reason. So this thing stands there looming over the school grounds and everybody has to kind of sort of move around it and it's sort of, you know, the elephant in the room. There's this constant reminder of, of what occurred. There's a memorial garden there that now students get to work on to dig and plant flowers and put little painted stones down. Um, there's an annual day of remembrance for the victims of the shooting where all schools get a half day and the rest of the day is sort of dedicated to children going off and, and doing community service or uh, you know helping out in their community some way some way or just having a, a, a quiet time of reflection um, so really it's you know the, the way that the children have um, for, for, for years to come even children that were not at the school at the time are 
uh, sort of get to still remember and, and commemorate and memorialize what occurred. It's kind of interesting to see my own kids are, are forever uh, baffled by the gun culture in America. They are Americans themselves, but uh, you know the hunting, shooting, and fishing culture is one thing, and guns are a, are a part of that. But but this idea that one should carry a gun in one's back pocket, or that you can even own um, a, a sort of weapon of mass destruction or a firearm that would otherwise usually be seen only on a battlefield is, uh, is something that I can never explain to my kids and they can't explain either. That was Times uh, Miami correspondent Jackie Goddard uh, giving her reflections on America's relationship with guns, uh, but particularly the Stoneman Douglas High School shooting, uh, which happened on uh, February the 14th, uh, Valentine's Day in 2018, uh, in which uh, 17 people were killed. Uh, up next, we're going to discuss more about that uh, culture, but with two Americans who now uh, live in the UK, uh, Greg Swenson from Republicans Overseas and Morgan Scholdemeyer from the Adam Smith Institute Think Tank. We'll do that next. Tom Newton Dunn, Sunday morning from 10 on Times Radio. In the no political analysis and industrial strength debate. If Joe Biden knew this collapse was imminent, why then didn't he change course? With a top quality lineup of guests and commentators. Some of the actions we've taken are already starting to bear fruit. Reviewing the week in politics from Westminster and beyond. People across the political divide, if you like, uniting to say this should not and cannot have happened on our watch. Tom Newton Dunn, Sunday morning from 10 on Times Radio. Matt Chorley on Times Radio with GoDaddy. Providing all the help and tools you need to grow your business online. Nice to have you this, Matt Chorley on uh, Times Radio. Now we're discussing gun crime, uh, gun, uh, the gun culture in America. We were just struck, it's been three weeks now since that terrible incident in Plymouth where five uh, people uh, were killed by a gunman before turning the gun on himself. The last time, we, it's been something like 10 years since we had uh, such a ser serious mass shooting in the UK, thank goodness. But in the time since the Plymouth shooting, there have been 35 mass shootings in the USA alone in just the last three weeks. And it's one of those things where so many similarities between Britain and America, and we think we're, you know... Uh, so alike in many ways, but it's the thing that Brits find most baffling. Well, let's speak to two Americans who live in the UK and see if they can explain it to us. Uh, Greg Swenson is from Republicans Overseas. Hi, Greg. Hello, Matt. Thanks for having me. It's nice to have you with us. And Morgan Schottermeyer from the Adam Smith Institute. Hi, Morgan. Hi, Matt. Uh, Greg, first of all, explain uh, where and about in America you're from. Uh, 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 where did you live before you came to the UK? And, and just the... Explain as best you can the gun culture in that area. Yeah, I, I, happy to do it, Matt. And again, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I grew up in New York and in, in the suburbs of New York in Huntington, Long Island. Now, I'm not really much of a gun culture place. Um, I think, you know, partly because gun laws have been so strict in New York and, and other states like it. Um, but I think it's also some, some culture as cultural issues. There, there's really no notable hunting uh, in that area. And, and also, you know, as, as you all know, that, you know, the culture of, of guns is much more prominent in the South and in parts of the Midwest where, where you have more of a hunting culture in many ways. Um, I, I also spent most of my adult life in Chicago, where the gun laws are also very strict, but um, we're, you know, we've been suffering for generations, um, you know, gun violence in, in, in certain parts of Chicago. 
And also, um, you know, we've also experienced a spike just in the last year or so. And, and so, so we see, you know, I, in spite of not coming from a, a gun background, except for my brothers being in the military and my, my grandfather was a New York City policeman. But, you know, from in, in a time where, you know, the only time he drew his gun was to shoot a, a horse with a broken ankle is a story he always, he always told my brothers. And so, um, you know, I, I, I can't say I'm, you know, I, I can't say I understand the gun culture personally. I, I do support the Second Amendment, but it's not something that's part of my background. But, I, but I've seen it up close and personal living in Chicago. When you say you, you mentioned the Second Amendment, just for people who don't know, explain explain the Second Amendment to the American Constitution. The Second Amendment is, is the part of the, the uh, Constitution that protects uh, protects gun rights, protects the the uh, the right to own a, a firearm in the U.S. Let's bring in Morgan Sondermeyer now. Uh, Morgan, same question to you, really. Whereabouts in America are you from originally? What's your understanding uh, of the gun culture? So I'm from uh, just over the road from Greg. I'm from uh, the shoreline of Connecticut. So basically the same uh, upbringing, not big gun culture. Um, yeah, no hunting, no, uh, you know, open carry laws or anything like that. So guns were not uh, in my face growing up. I went to university in Florida and my parents now live in North Carolina. So whenever I go home, I do go home to that, like typically Southern um, state where there are people with guns. Open carry is a thing you can, you know, yeah, you ask any person and they'll tell you about their guns. So people who have guns love guns. Um, I've never, you know, come across anyone in, in, in my life growing up who, who had that affinity, but as soon as you go down South and this is going to sound super stereotypical, but (laughs) stereotypes are sometimes based in fact. And I suppose, Uh, but it's also a good reminder that this is not all of America. It's certain parts of America where there is more of this culture and being in the UK, do you get Morgan people asking you about this a lot uh, about what, what the hell is going on in America? Why don't you just ban, you know, and when we've had sadly some of these incidents, incidents in the UK before, you know, gun controls, particularly after Dunblane, why don't you just ban them? An obvious way of of reducing not having 35 incidents uh, in the last three weeks is to have fewer people who've got guns. Do, do you get asked about that all the time as if it's sort of slightly your responsibility? Oh, absolutely. One thing you learn as an American living abroad is you are a representative for all of the rest of America. Um, so I get asked this quite frequently. And as Jackie mentioned in the intro, um, I was subject to active shooter drills uh, when I was in school in the early 2000s. Um, We had to practice getting away from the windows, barring the door uh, and all of that. Um, So when I say that to my friends here in the UK, they're they're dumbfounded that that is actually something that I grew up with. Um, And you mentioned Dunblane. So where I'm from, Connecticut, is is the home of our own Dunblane, Sandy Hook. Um, And Jackie alluded to this in her introduction. Uh, Sandy Hook uh, was... A situation where a active shooter went into an elementary school and killed 26 people, 20 of whom were uh, children, first and second graders, um, so five, six years old. And not much changed. Nothing changed on the national level. Almost nothing changed state level um, after Sandy Hook. Um, and I sit here and think, as Jackie said, if school children being shot in their classroom is an impetus enough to change the gun laws what is and, and i suppose that that's the thing so what what is it that's stopping it um uh changing greg um somebody's messaged in ollie in bedford says could you ask uh, your american guests if they think the nra which is obviously the national rifle association 
uh, is the main blocker of sensible gun reform needed to curb mass shootings in America. If military-grade weapons and sensible background checks could be implemented, surely this would help massively. What is it? Because it's, you know, we see knee-jerk political responses to much less significant events uh, where thing happens and politicians say, right, we're going to clamp down on that or we're going to do such and such. Um, this doesn't seem, in that the, the montage of uh, US, we, there were so many cases of US presidents paying tribute, sounding sad in the wake of mass shooting, but nothing seems to happen. What is the block? And what's, what is the power of the, of the NRA? Well, it's a, it's a great question, Matt, and I appreciate Morgan's sentiments. You know, I, I was I happened to be in Connecticut during the Sandy Hook shootings um, a few miles away at the time when I lived there. And, and, and those are particularly, you know, heart, you know, just wrenching moments. And, and I think that's why you see so much political rhetoric after it. And then you wonder, you know, why isn't there, aren't there changes? I know Governor Rick Scott, who's now a senator, implemented some some new restrictions after the the shooting in in Parkland, Florida. Um, and Morgan brings up a good point. I don't think, in spite of Connecticut being a very you know, democratic, very blue state, um, there wasn't much of a change after Sandy Hook. And I think part of it is like any really um, divisive issues. Everybody digs into their sides, right? So that the NRA is afraid that if they give an inch. On something like, you know, um, like uh, assault weapons, you know, that the left will take a mile and all of a sudden we'll be talking about banning guns and that will, you know, freak everybody out who, who owns guns and, and likes guns. And I agree, by the way, with Morgan, that people that have guns really love them. And, and even my friends in the north, um, you know, especially with with the increase in crime and the, and the reduction in, in policing you know, they're, they're nervous and they just want to have their right to defend themselves. But the, the, you know, that when you see these school shootings, it's horrible. But I also remind you that, you know, a lot of these mass shootings, you mentioned 35 incidents recently, Matt, you know, those are shootings, aside from school shootings, which are tragic, obviously, they're usually shootings in the inner city involved and often involving children, three children died in Chicago last weekend. So, you know, we have to look at what's causing these homicides, and it's probably more the the, the um, reduction in policing, the so-called defunding police movement, as well as the DAs that are that are um, instituting bail reform. You know, these Soros-backed DAs that have cut back on prosecuting lesser crimes, but also releasing people. So, so a lot of the a lot of the gun violence in Chicago right now are recently released uh, felons that aren't being prosecuted properly by the DAs. And that's been a, a big issue. So, you know, I, I don't know that, that, um, that where there's ever going to be a moment where guns will be just illegal. Um, it's something that just doesn't gain any support. And, and in spite of the, you know, the excitement or the, you know, the tragedies of these school shootings, you know, I think there, there was a lot of finger pointing. And if you look at Nicholas Cruz, who was the shooter in Parkland, you know, there were some obvious issues with him. He should never have been allowed in school, you know, whether or not you're for gun control or not, there's other issues that, you know, that, that lead to these things. And again, I'm not advocating that everybody should walk around with a gun, but you know, that a lot of this stuff has, 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 is because of overlooking a lot of these issues with people like Nicholas Cruz, as well as the fact that policing has been reduced and, and prosecutions have been um, dramatically reduced in these cities. And that's, that's why, that's why we've seen the spike in homicides in Chicago and other cities in the last year. So is it basically the case, Morgan, that, that nobody could become U.S. president or running on a ticket of gun controls? Is that basically because partly because of the, the, the way the system works and you need to win in so many different parts of the, the, the country? And as you were saying, it's 
more concentrate in different areas. And as a result, political expediency wins the day ultimately. Yeah, um, the original question is about how powerful the NRA is. The NRA is incredibly powerful. It's the most powerful lobby in the US. Um, they have millions and millions and millions in a war chest and they fund um, pro-gun uh, candidates. Um, and that is incredibly influential when it comes down to it. How much money you have access to is incredibly influential. And those politicians are never going to change their stripes because of how much money the NRA gives them. Um, I'd like to pick up on something Greg just said about how the shooter in Parkland was clearly mentally ill and should not have been allowed in the school. I think the most important thing is he should not have been allowed access to a semi-automatic rifle. Um, So I'm sure that was, you agree with that, but I would just like to point out that the issue here isn't um, necessarily about, it is also about mental health provision and making sure that we're taking care of vulnerable people in our society, but also about some basic due diligence when it comes to access to guns. A lot of states don't require any background checks at all. Um, You can buy a semi-automatic rifle at Walmart. There was a shooting in Texas um, where a man went into a Walmart with a semi-automatic rifle and uh, killed several people. I had a lot of British people ask, how did this happen? How did no one raise the alarm? It's because you can walk around Texas with a semi-automatic rifle on your back. That's legal. Um, So these sorts of things are just completely unnecessary. You can protect the second amendment and have right to access arms. But the idea that we wouldn't even do a background check, the idea that you can carry a loaded semi-automatic rifle on your back in the streets, these are unrealistic, unnecessary provisions that we could easily get rid of. Not easily, but we should get rid of. Um, And you can still protect the the right to the second amendment for hunting, fishing, self-defense, all of that. So just finally, then, do you think uh, there's, there will ever be a time when a US president might get a grip on this issue? It, or is it just an accepted part of life that this is one of the things that happens in America and it doesn't even really make the news a lot of the time uh, because it's, it's just a part of life? Is it just a, the price that you pay? Somebody texted in saying um, the majority of Americans care more about their guns than about the hundreds of children uh, left dead by their use. Is that is that fair, Greg? Is there ever going to be a time when a president might tackle it? Well, I think we have one right now who's who's very much a, a gun control advocate. I don't think it will ever fly in in Congress because of, of some of the points that Morgan and I agree on that, you know, it's not something that has ever been embraced by the population. And, and look that you'll see in the in the midterm elections, for example, in 2006 and 2018, the Democrats had great success by running pro gun or at least pro Second Amendment candidates. And then when they get into Congress, you know, you'll hear a lot from the, the, the far left or the progressives about gun control. But that's what usually when they do better in elections is when they have a more balanced um, candidate. So and I think it'll just I, I think the other reason it's never going to fly, even with a pro gun control candidate, I mean, a president like Biden, it's, you know, look, these these mass shootings are tragic, but they're happening in inner cities right now. They're not happening at schools. And maybe the schools get more attention. But, yeah. you know, the U.S. is 4.6 percent of the world population, only one percent of the world shooters. If you look at France, Finland, Norway and some of the Eastern European countries, they have a higher per capita death rate from mass shootings than the U.S. And yet they have much stricter gun laws. And, if, and, and, and Morgan mentioned that the states that, you know, some have more strict rules than others. And it's it's the states with the more strict gun control that has the more of the gun violence problems. It's not always correlated. And that's, you know, it's unpleasant to say, 
but you know, the, I think just some having some statistics are are important to absolutely, just yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's why we wanted to, wanted to have you on. Just just quickly, Morgan, can you ever see a situation where where um, a president might might grasp this? Um, unfortunately, not unless they control the House and the Senate um, and have the you know the gumption to do it. Um, uh, I, I don't see it happening. It, you can't do it uh, if you don't control both the House and the Senate. Yeah, it would yeah. just never pass. Well, it's been fascinating, if, uh, slightly depressing, but it's, I think it's an interesting. I'm really pleased we've been able to um, uh, discuss it and get your your take on it. Uh, Morgan Schondermeyer from the Adam Smith Institute, Greg Swenson from uh, Republicans Overseas. Thanks so much for joining us on Times Radio. And I just thought, um, one of the most depressing things when we were sort of looking to this and reading all the statistics of of just how many uh, mass shootings there are in America, uh, as well as all those clips of the president at the beginning, I just thought we'd just play out on this. Probably sums up. Uh, the powerlessness, it seems, of U.S. presidents of when this was back in 2015, uh, when U.S. President Barack Obama was delivering a eulogy at the service for the church leader, uh, Clementa Pickney, who was among nine people shot dead in the city of Charleston. And uh, the U.S. president, supposedly one of the most powerful men in the world, uh, was just reduced to singing. Amazing grace Sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And we'll we'll see if it ever changes. We'll see if it ever changes. Although it wasn't a particularly uh, optimistic conversation there uh, with Greg and Morgan. And thanks to Jackie Goddard too, our correspondent uh, in Miami. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from? <laughs>